Well, God bless you. It's so good to be back again with you today, and thanks so much for coming. We realize it's not always possible to travel to a service somewhere and to fellowship with the other people there, so we bring that service to you, wherever you are, as you know, anywhere in Israel, anywhere in the world. And we hope you'll be encouraged today as you discover God's peace and the promises He has for your life. Would you open in your Bibles today to Genesis 49? That's where we're going to be today. And as you know, we'll also put those verses up here for you in the video just to make it easier for you to follow along. I'd like to talk to you today about finishing well. You know, we're now one chapter away from the end of HaSefer Bereshit. In Hebrew, Be'evrit HaSefer, the book Bereshit. Beginnings, Hasefer Bereshit, the book of beginnings, or as you know it in English as the book of Genesis, the first book in the Torah, the first book in our English Bible. And today we see the story that Jacob, that has now lived 147 years, and he's on his deathbed. He doesn't know when he's going to die, but he feels like it's any day now. But his thoughts are not on himself. That's the interesting thing about this chapter. No, his eyes are on the Lord, and his heart is on blessing his sons by encouraging them and sometimes rebuking them in a way that will keep them on the track as they take up the mantle and go forward serving the Lord in life. Now, Jacob has run a long race. God's been faithful to him all these years, and now the finish line is in sight. Jacob focuses all his remaining strength on finishing that race, on crossing that finish line. And remember, this is a relay race. Jacob's finish line is his son's starting line. So in his last act, Jacob wants to encourage his sons, telling them the truth, what they need to hear, what they've done wrong, what they've done right, but telling them the truth, being a loving Heavenly Father, and encouraging them that God will always be there with them as they run their part of the race. And that's the way a servant of God should finish the race, by helping and encouraging others. That's finishing the race well. That's finishing well. And that's what's happening in our story today in Genesis chapter 49. In this chapter, we'll see the elderly Jacob, Yaakov is how we say his name, Beifrit, or in Hebrew, We'll see the elderly Yaakov, who God has renamed to Israel, is about to die. He doesn't know the day, but he knows it's any day now, like we said. And Genesis chapter 49, and after that, Genesis 50, that will bring us to the end of the book of Genesis. And remember that in Hebrew, again, the book of Genesis is called what? Ha-sefer Bereshit. Ha-sefer Bereshit, the book of beginnings. And Hasefer Bereshit, the book of Genesis, is the first book in the English Bible. And for the Jewish people, it's the first book of the Torah, or the law of God. And that's just a Hebrew way of saying that it's the first of the five books in our English Bible. The five books of Moses, we would call them. And it's the first book in what we call in Hebrew the Tanakh what English speakers call the Old Testament. It's Tanakh, but it's really an acronym. It stands for T-N-K. Uh, Torah is the first five books. The N is Netuvim, or the prophets. That's a Hebrew word for, uh, for uh, uh, the prophets. Neveim, sorry, Neveim. And uh, the Torah, the Neveim, and the Ketuvim. The Ketuvim is the writing, so that's the K. It's that kind of funny sound, that K and H, that H. So Torah, Neveim, Ketuvim. Okay, so Tanakh, T-N-K, that's what they call the Old Testament. It's the same book. We actually have one difference in the book of Psalms. They had one more psalm that we do. But basically, some of their verse boundaries start at a different place in the verses in the same text that we have, but start in a different place in the text for a verse boundary than ours. But it's the same text. So their Tanakh is our Old Testament. Their Torah is our first five books 
of the, of the Bible, the books of, of Moses, we would say. So if you're Jewish, and I'm Jewish, you know, these studies are giving you a solid understanding of what the Torah says. We're not going to depart from the straight and clear understanding of what the written Word of God says. We're not going to depart from the written Word of God and go off into various traditions that man say uh, has things to say about. We're going to stay with what God said. Now, sure, you've got some good teachers in Christianity. I'm sure you've got some good uh, teachers in Judaism. But do yourself a favor. Don't trust what man says. Go to the source. Go to the written Word of God. In the Hebrew, we call that the Pishat. It means the simple and obvious interpretation of Scripture. You know, there's so many people today that say that they have a deeper understanding of the Bible and they almost mock at the people that read the Bible simply and understand the simple message of the Bible. They say, oh, you're just being simple, but there's much deeper truths there that only I can tell you. Oh, sure. Look, don't be pulled in by that. Don't be a sucker for those kinds of things. Go to the source, the written word of God. And you know, as you see, the scripture never disagrees with other scripture, right? That's because scripture, the written scripture, is the word of God. And God doesn't make mistakes. God doesn't cause confusion to those that come to him and want to know him. He makes it to where his word can be easily understood by someone who seeks him and wants to know him. Remember that. On the other hand, though, we see in many of the writings of man, one rabbi argues with another rabbi about what the interpretation of Scripture means. And one pastor can't agree with another pastor about what the Word of God means. And the problem is, is they're, in, they're inserting stories from their own imagination. And they're adding their two cents worth. Or if you're in Israel, they're adding their two agarots worth. That would be even smaller than two pennies, I guess. And so remember, anytime you take your eyes off of the Lord and you put them on man, you're going to go astray. That's why even the authors of the Mishnah Torah in the Talmud, the first part of the Talmud, the Jewish holy book that has the commentary on Scripture, on the Tanakh, and the Torah. That's why the authors of the Mishnah Torah, the holiest part of that, the first generation commentary on the Torah, the Mishnah Torah authors say that the written word of God is the authority. And it holds preeminence. It holds authority over any oral tradition, over any traditions of man, over anything that man tries to add along the way. God doesn't need your help. Keep your fingerprints off of the Word of God except to turn the pages and read its life-giving words. Remember, the written Word of God is the Word of God. Jesus always proved His case by saying, It is written. You do well if you do the same. And if you remember this one verse from the Bible, you'll do very well in your studies and, in fact, in life. Isaiah 40, verse 6 through 8 says, All flesh is grass. And all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. Verse 7, the grass withers and the flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass and the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Remember that. Don't be looking for mysticism or any sort of spiritualism or things that you think is going to give you the answer. In the Bible are all the answers you need. And it was obviously written by God himself because it has this confirmation in it called prophecy. Whereas God spoke hundreds, sometimes thousands of years ahead of time about detailed events that would happen in the future. And they came to pass exactly as he said they would. Uh, nobody knows the future except for God, you see. So that tells you right there that anything else that this book says, it's going to be a message from God. And that's important 
Because the same book that tells you about these prophecies and shows its author is God because only he knows the future, that same book tells you how to know him and be saved from your sins and have everlasting life in the kingdom of heaven after this life on earth. You see why that's important, of course. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Now in this chapter, we see that as the custom was at that time, the patriarch of the family would give a blessing to each of his sons as he got older before he passed away. And Jacob knew that his time on earth was drawing to a close. So he wanted to speak some words of encouragement to his sons. But remember, as we've said before, these blessings were far more than just pleasant words. They were prophecies at that time given to the patriarch by the Holy Spirit of God. And we know that because we can read on further in the Tanakh after these blessings were made. We can read on further in the Old Testament and see that the details of these blessings came to pass exactly as the patriarch of the family said they would. They weren't just, oh, I hope everything goes well for you. No, it says, oh, here's what your life is going to be like. And started listing all these details. And those details came to pass. God had blessed the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with this prophetic blessing for their uh, sons. And those prophecies would even carry over into the New Testament, or as you would say it in Hebrew, Habrit HaChadashah, the New Testament. And you see these things, and they're blessings, yes, but they're powerful blessings. And the time of life in which they were given the people that were going to receive these blessings really looked forward to what was going to be said because obviously whatever was going to be said was going to define the future of their life. And they all had an interest in wanting to know their future. So they looked forward to what their father was going to say about them. It revealed their future to them. You see, they knew that what would be said would not just be the words of their father but that the Holy Spirit would be the real one who was giving their father the words to say. So it was a time in which they all paid very close attention to what was being said. Now, in the same way, we who study God's word today should pay close attention to what's being said here in his word. Now, Yaakov, Jacob, is going to go through all the names of his sons and give his words about the future of each one of them as he goes along. So we're going to go through the chapter, reading what Yaakov says about each son, and then we'll discuss for a bit what he talked about and what it means in terms of our lives today. What it meant for that particular son as he went through the scriptures and lived his life after Yaakov passed away. And having an understanding about what's being said in Genesis 49 will be a powerful key in understanding the rest of God's Word as we continue in our studies in the future. So let's take a look at Genesis 49 together now. Beginning at verse 1, it says, And Yaakov called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Verse 2, Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Now let's talk about just these first two verses right now. And then we'll, after he says each couple of verses here, we'll stop and talk about it for a little while. We're only going to go through the first 12 verses. But you know me. You know that I can talk a long time with 12 verses. And no, don't you say anything. But anyway, here you are again. Why'd you come? But so God can fill us with his word, it's what makes us grow in life, right? So we see what's going on here. And he says in verse 2, Gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. What's going on there? Jacob, Israel, your Remember, God had changed Jacob's name to Israel. That night he wrestled with him when he was all alone. And Jacob was wrestling with whether he was going to trust his own plans to get away from his brother Esau, who was going to meet him the next morning and maybe even try to kill him, or if he was going to trust God to take care of him. In the end, God won. And God changed Jacob's name. Remember, Jacob's name meant heel catcher, deceiver, 
supplanter. He would steal blessings. He would connive. He would plan and make bad schemes and lie and do all of these deceptive things to try to get other people to give him things, to get his own father to give him the blessing of his older brother Esau. He lied and told his father, took advantage of his father's blindness and said, oh yeah, I'm Esau, your oldest, brother, your oldest son. And, and, Esau, and Isaac blessed him instead. So he stole his brother's blessing. He lied to get a blessing, a blessing that was going to be a blessing from God. And Jacob lied to get it. He was a hill catcher. He was a, always tripping people up. He was a deceiver trying to steal from people, trying to lie to get what he wanted. Interesting thing is, is he's lying, trying to get the blessings of God. What was he thinking? That God doesn't see what he's doing and God's got to give that blessing to him because it's his blessing now. What's going on? You know, but he had this going on earlier in life. But that day that he gave his life to the Lord changed everything. In fact, God even changed his name from Jacob, which meant deceiver, to Israel, which meant serve, servant of God. Servant of God, governed by God, if you will, literally. Governed by God, from governed by Jacob's carnal, fleshly, thoughts and deception and lies it changed to Israel now being governed by the holy pure righteous heavenly father now he's an older man the time has come for Israel we'll call him to take his leave of this world he's lived about 147 years life to the full He's seen the hand of God move over and over again in his life. He's seen God do miracles for him. He's seen God protect him from almost certain death in times of trouble and trial. And when powerful people were stealing from him, he's seen God bless him instead and bring him away as a winner in that contest when he didn't even have to fight. God fought for him. He's tasted life's sweetest blessings. He's known its bitter moments as well. But one final dramatic scene had to be played out still. And Jacob calls his sons and says to them, gather together because I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to you in the last days. And the sons gathered around the old man. and He proceeded to speak to each one of them. Remember now, he's not a strong man. He's basically talking to them right before he's going to pass away. He doesn't have a lot of energy. They're having to listen closely. His voice is not projecting loudly. He can't see them really well. He can't see the expression on their faces. Maybe they're rolling their eyes as he's talking to them. But remember, he had this going for them. In those days, God would prophetically speak through the patriarch and proclaim things which definitely would come to pass in the son's lives later. So... They were listening closely to their father as he began to speak to each one of them about their future. Now, when we think of terms of like blessings and we say the word blessings, we assume that that's something complimentary, something happy, some good news and some encouraging words is what's going to be spoken. But we may have some difficulty in seeing blessings in some of the things that we're going to see Jacob say to his sons today. For example, Shimon, in English you say Simeon, okay, Simon, if you will, and Levi, in English you say Levi, were hardly complimented by their father. And there appears to be little cause for celebration on their part in response to what their uh, father has to say about them. But keep in mind, Jacob's love for his sons also means that he's going to give them important warnings when they're needed so that they could change their directions and avoid trouble down the road. He had observed them carefully for many years. He knew them. He knew what they were like. He knew what they were thinking. And what, from what he had seen, he had compared to his own experiences in life when he was a younger man, and he wanted them to avoid some of the heartaches and hardships that he had gone through. And he was going to tell them some hard truths. 
Some things that maybe their best friend would not tell them, but some things that a loving father had to tell them because of his love for them. To have a father like that is a blessing. And to be told what is going to happen in the future, if you continue in a way that is such and such, that's going to be a blessing indeed. You can see how to avoid hardship, you see. You can know whether to go to the right or the left, what to do and what to watch out for, what not to do. It could save a person a great deal of pain. In fact, it could even save their lives. So let's continue on at verse 3 now, getting on through our first 12 verses today. Verse 3 says, Reuben, Jacob speaking, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and excellency of power. Verse 4 then, he switches gears. He says, but you're unstable as water. You shall not excel because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. You went up to my couch. It says he went up to my couch. So we see in these verses here, verse 3 and 4, Jacob first starts out talking about the sons who brought shame upon the family, it seems like. And he starts out with Reuben. He was the oldest. He says that, Reuben, you were born to greatness. You were the firstborn. You're supposed to be the greatest among all my children. And as the firstborn, Jacob had indeed inherited special rights when he was, uh, had the blessing of the firstborn. And he knows that Reuben was supposed to have the blessings of the firstborn. Jacob had stolen the blessings of the firstborn from Isaac, his father. Blessings that were supposed to be going to, to Esau, his brother. But God had said that the younger would be preeminent over the older anyway. And Isaac knew that. But yet Isaac was still intending on blessing Esau, Jacob's older brother, instead, for all the wrong reasons. Anyway, God took Jacob's sin, caused it to be what God wanted it to be anyway, and Jacob paid the price for his sin later. But there's no counsel, there's no wisdom, there's no might or strength against the Lord in his plans. God's plans will always come to pass. He doesn't need your help. You don't have to do anything dishonest. If you just wait on the Lord, He'll bring it to you and put it in your hands. You see, what He promises in your life, He will bring to your life. You don't have to do it. You don't have to take it out of His hands and try to do it in your own strength. I guarantee you, once your fingerprints are on it, it'll just be all messed up and God will have to fix it. And you would have wished that you would have left it alone and let God bring it to you instead. But now He sees that Reuben is the firstborn of his 12 sons. And as the firstborn, he knows that Reuben has certain special rights and privileges given to him. That's why he said the excellency of dignity, the excellency of power was yours. You're the firstborn. You're the first of my strength. You're my oldest son. But there was one event in Reuben's life that really marred Reuben's life for good. And Jacob reminded Reuben of it in the presence of his brothers. And this would have been embarrassing. He said, Reuben, you're as unstable as water. He didn't pull any punches. He didn't soften the blows. He told him the truth right to his face. He says, you're as unstable as water. You're not going to excel. You shall not excel, he said in that verse. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. He turns to his other brothers and goes, he went up to my couch. What was he talking about? A time back in Genesis where we saw that Reuben went in and slept with one of his father's wives. His father had wives, two wives there, Leah and Rachel. But then he also had children by Leah's handmaid and by Rachel's handmaid. He had children by them. And that, that person at that time was called kind of a surrogate mom, but they, they had a name for it called a concubine. And it was some lady who would, who would just be part of the family just to have children because the real wife couldn't have children. Well, Reuben saw this one lady. He lusted after her. And when his father wasn't looking, he went in and had sex with this lady. And that was a disgrace for the family. It was a disgrace for Reuben. It was a disgrace and a hurt for the lady. And it was a disgrace 
to Jacob that his own son, his firstborn son, the one in which he was supposed to have the most strength and pride, would go in and do this horrible thing. So he says to Reuben, you're unstable. And that's unstable. And that's a key word. It says unstable, that means wildness, unruliness. You've got no self-control. And when applied to the metaphor of water, when you're talking about instability or uh, instability, you're, you're saying that the water is just an uncontrolled torrent of passion to which Reuben was apparently susceptible and he had no way of controlling. It was shown grossly in his incestuous relationship with his father's wife. And one can almost sense the disgust in Jacob's voice as he turned to the brothers and said, He went up to my couch. This is what your brother did. He did this. And then his father's abrupt summary of his future was frightening. He just said, you shall not excel. I know every one of them wanted to excel. They wanted to be successful. They were still young. They had their entire lives ahead of them. Here's their father prophetically speaking by God that to Reuben that you shall not excel. That had to be pretty depressing. Not only what is it true of Reuben the man, but it also described with great accuracy the fate of the tribe which bore Reuben's name later in the Bible as a tribe of Israel, you see. Now let's continue on, and he's going to be talking to two other of his sons right now in verse 5. And verse 5 says, Shimon and Levi are brothers. Their instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Verse 6, let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger, they slew a man. They killed a man. And in their self-will, they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, verse 7 says. For it is fierce, and their wrath for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Ouch. Now, we said that Jacob is opening up with the blessings for his son, for his 12 sons. He's opening up with these blessings for his 12 sons, but he seems to be focusing on the ones who have done this evil first, Reuben and now Shimon and Levi, which you would call Simeon and Levi, I guess, in English. But Shimon and Levi are brothers. He says, instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. I don't even want to be there. I don't want to, I don't let my honor be united with their assembly is what their very own father says. I don't want to be associated with them. He was referring to a horrible time when the two brothers, remember, when Dina, their sister, Dina was raped in the city of Shechem. And Shechem and the people there the ruler had a son, and the son really liked Dina, and he was not ready to ask her to marry him, and he just raped her. And this was horrible. And then he came back to Jacob and his family trying to buy them with all of this trading in the land and this economic prosperity that could be theirs if they traded within their cities and they would be like brothers with them. And trying to smooth over the raping of Jacob's daughter, the raping of Dina, the, the sister of these 12 brothers. And Shimon and Levi tricked the people of Shechem. They said, okay, well, we'll have this economic cooperation, but first of all, you have to be circumcised or we won't, we won't be able to do any business with you. And so they convinced these guys, all of these men in Shechem, big city, to be circumcised so that they can have this trade with the tribe of Jacob there, with, with the people that, that uh, uh, belong to Jacob's extended family. They're all the servants that live there, the, the, the kids and their wives and their children, all of these people. And it, was, it was going to be a great economic boon to the city of Shechem. So Shimon and Levi convinced these people of Shechem 
that the men would have to be circumcised. Well, on the third day after they were all circumcised, that's when they're weakest and all laying down in bed and couldn't get out of bed. Shimon and Levi went in the city and killed every one of the men. They even killed the animals. They took all the wealth back to themselves. And when Jacob, their father, found out what they had done, he said, what have you done? He said, we're strangers in this land, and now all the cities around us will band together and come and kill us because of what you've done. You've given us a horrible reputation. And they said, well, they raped our sister. And they had, and that was horrible. But there was another way to deal with it, and it could have been one-on-one. -on -one. It didn't have to involve all the innocent people that weren't involved with that crime with their sister. There was one man that did that horrible crime, and he had to be held accountable. But in their anger, Shimon and Levi killed all the men of that city, came up with this plan, and plundered their homes, and kidnapped their wives and their children. And the violence and viciousness which they acted with in Jacob's eyes was sufficient grounds for saying that he never wanted to be placed at their mercy, never wanted to be uh, around them and provoke him to utter the solemn words, in fact, that cursed be their anger. He actually cursed them. It wasn't a blessing. He cursed them. For it is fierce, he said, and their wrath, for it is cruel, in verse 7. So that was a hard thing for him to say. And you're going, now, wow, that's, this, is pretty, this is a pretty hard chapter, Pastor Stephen. You're talking about Reuben who slept with his father's wife. And now you're talking about Shimon and Levi who killed all the men in this city and everything. And, you know, what other blessings does Yaakov have for the other sons? Well, it actually changes now. But he wanted to get the bad stuff out of the way. And the rest of them are going to be pretty good. The predicted scattering of these two tribes, by the way, which Jacob talked about, how he's going to scatter them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Remember we said Jacob and Israel are the same person. The heart's been changed, but Jacob and Israel are the same person. Two different names for the same person. He's, going to say, he's saying now, I'm going to scatter you, Levi, in Israel. I'm going to scatter you, Shimon, in Israel. And that's exactly what happened. It did take place in the case of Shimon. They were scattered, almost ceasing to exist. Never really contributed much at all, it seems like. But the grace of God was evident in Levi's history. And they became the priestly order, as you know, because of the Levites being the priesthood. So what's that about? I thought he said that they would be scattered. And now it looks like they were rewarded in being the priesthood. Well, we'll see that later... After the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai to Moses while he was up there, remember that the Jewish people made and worshipped a golden calf down below? Well, the only tribe that did not participate in the worship of that golden calf was the tribe of Levi, the tribe of Levi. So while the tribe of Shimon was scattered in Israel, Levi was scattered, but not in a bad way. Levi was scattered because God designed it to where Levi would not have a portion of the land that was an entire strip of land like the other tribes of Israel would have in the promised land. But Levi was to go and live outside of the cities in Israel and the land around the cities would be land for them to plant their crops and grow and they would have their own way to live there because they had their land being the priests for Israel and being assigned to the various cities in Israel. So they were scattered, but they were scattered as a blessing because they stood against worshiping that golden calf like the other tribes in Israel had done when Moses was up on Mount Sinai receiving the law of God. The tribe of Levi did not get an allocation of the promised land as the other tribes did, like we said. But the Lord assigned to them the various cities of the promised land to represent the Lord to the people. And that's how they were scattered, but scattered as a blessing. These allocations surrounded the cities. The Levites, the Levites received the land. 
Now they could grow their crops and support themselves. So you see, it was different between Shimon and Levi because Levi did something that pleased the Lord. Shimon apparently didn't seem to change. And they just kept going in their wayward way and God scattered them. Now we continue at verse 8 and it says, Judah. Oh, we've all heard of Judah, right? The lion from the tribe of Judah, you know, you know, the Judah, you know. We hear about him in prophetic utterances all the time. Verse 8 says, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. This is Jacob speaking to Judah now as they're all there gathered together. J Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be upon the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. And then he says, Judah is a lion's whelp. He's a young lion is what he's saying. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He bows down, he crouches down, he lies down as a lion, as a lion who shall arouse him. The scepter, he says in verse 10, pay attention to this. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. We'll talk about these in a little bit. Verse 11, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. Verse 12, his eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. And that was before crest white strips, I guess, you know, the white teeth. But anyway, it says, we read these verses and what's this saying, Pastor Stephen? Well, in the verses we just read, Jacob is now talking about the sons who were distinguished. Before, he was talking about the three sons who were bad. Now he's talking about the sons in whom he's pleased. So now the blessings actually turn into blessings instead of rebukes, I guess you would say. Now, Judah was by no means a perfect son. He had exhibited some fine qualities when the opportunity presented itself. But remember, he was the one that recommended that as they were selling Joseph into slavery into Egypt, he says, well, why kill him? Let's get some money for him. We'll sell him away. But then later, he repented. And how he repented was that he offered his own life and servanthood forever in order to free his younger brother, Benjamin, when the brothers were standing before Joseph and didn't know that it was Joseph. Remember, we'd read that a couple of weeks ago. And so this was the moment when Judah was willing to take the place of another and take another's punishment upon himself. Who does that sound like? That's why the lion from the tribe of Judah is the Messiah, you see. He comes from the lineage of the tribe, which means praise. And we see one of the people in his ancestry, Judah, willing to take the place of another and take another's punishment upon himself. That's what these verses are saying. Now, Jacob said of Judah, he said, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. That's prophetic right there. Because the one who would come from the tribe of Judah, indeed, all of his Jewish brothers and all of the world who believed in him would praise him. He says, your hand will be upon the neck of your enemies. He's speaking about the Messiah when he comes will rule with a rod of iron, with an iron fist. But yet he also has love and compassion to those that come to him. But those that fight against him shall not prevail. And then he says to Judah, your father's children will bow down before you. Who's his father's children? The other 11 brothers. Your other 11 brothers are going to come and bow down before you. Then he says in verse 8 and 9, Judah is a lion's whelp. He's a young lion. He's got all of this energy. You think babies and, and you know, as they grow and they learn how to walk and run, you think they have a lot of energy. Where do you see a young lion? They're all over the place, playing with each other, can't be still, jumping, uh, running, jumping on each other, chasing each other down, everything. That's what cats are. And the big cats are no different. Uh, the lions, well, that robust energy, the daring initiatives that Judah had won the admiration of his brothers and showing them how he would be an atoning 
uh, substitution for his brother Benjamin, he gave them a really good example to follow. And they admired him for that. They admired him for his leadership, for his selflessness. It looks like somewhere along the way after he sold his brother into slavery in Egypt, Judah had a change of heart. And God got a hold of his heart. But Judah's leadership was foretelling the greatest leader that would come. That's the Messiah, who would eventually come from the tribe of Judah. Now I want you to look at something in specific in verse 10. I'll go over the verses again there in verse 10. The scepter, it says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. In other words, a little lawgiver raised up as a son of Judah shall not depart from his lineage until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now, what in the world could that mean? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Who's Shiloh? What's his scepter? <laughs> you know, what's this talking about, Pastor Stephen, in verse 10? Remember that in those times, a ruler, a king... Someone in authority or charge, a ruler or a king had a scepter or a staff, an ornate staff beside their throne. And the, the scepter was used to extend a person to uh, commute a sentence, if you will, or to spare a person's life, to prevent them from being killed for their transgressions. You remember Queen Esther. Queen Esther, right? In the holiday, it recalls the time which Queen Esther was not invited to the king, but she went into the king to plea for her people, the Jewish people, that they would not be killed as Hamon wanted them to be. Queen Esther went before the king. And at first she was not going to go, but her uncle Mordecai said, perhaps you were born for such a time as this. You know, if you don't go... God can raise up someone else, but God put you here for such a time as this. So Queen Esther decided to go. But here's the situation. The king had not invited her. And the king had a rule in his kingdom. And all the people had to enforce it. Even the king had to respect the rule. And that is, if someone came into his presence and they weren't invited, they were to be killed unless he took his scepter and extended it toward them. When he did that action, that person was not killed. They were allowed to go ahead and talk to the king. That's what the scepter is. Now, many years later, after that time, that story in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament, before Jesus the Messiah came, the Romans had granted to the Jewish leaders the power of the scepter to punish their own people with capital punishment for these severe sins. It was their way of like giving the Jewish people some power even though Rome occupied Israel. And Rome wanted to keep the people somewhat happy to where they wouldn't rebel all the time. So they gave them the power of the scepter and they gave them the ability to extend life or death to some of these people that were Jewish people doing these sins that were considered horrible sins to the Jewish uh, lawyers and to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But after Jesus had come and died for the sins of the people and been raised again from the dead, there was a revolt among the Jewish people, remember? And it preceded the destruction of the temple in 70 AD by the Roman legions. And the power of the scepter at that time, because of that Jewish revolt, Rome took that power of the scepter away from the Jewish leaders. Thus, the verse that we just read was fulfilled. Go back to that verse again. See what it says now. It says, the scepter shall not depart from, verse, uh, from Judah. It says in verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. So the scepter or the power of extending capital punishment or forgiveness or mercy to a, an offender, an offender, that would not depart from Judah, that power would not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver, a king, 
would not depart from Judah's lineage until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. What is that talking about? Who is Shiloh? Well, I want you to understand something. There's a lot of controversy around the world about what that verse means. Pretty much all of the scholars for a long time, except for, of course, liberal scholars, and they really don't believe anything the Bible has to say. They're always looking for things to, to disprove miracles and, and to disprove prophecy, saying that all prophecy was written after the events happened. That's why they're so accurate. They think God doesn't do any miracles. It's always amazed me that liberal scholars who say they're liberal theologians and say the word God, say it as if he's someone who made heaven and earth and all the universe, and yet... He can't do anything according to them. Who is it that they worship really? It's not the real God. And so we see that the scepter cannot depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. So something was going to happen at such a time in history that the scepter would be taken away from Judah, that lawgivers would not be from him anymore until... Shiloh comes. Well, the scepter was part of Judah for all that time given to them by the Romans and that, that capability was honored. But then the Messiah came. Well, commentators and theologians seem to think that Shiloh is talking about the Messiah. And it is, but not in the way that you're thinking. I'll explain. Notice that it says the lawgivers from the line of Judah would continue to come until Shiloh comes. Who is Shiloh? It's sometimes interpreted to be Messiah, as we said, but let's look closer at the Hebrew. In Hebrew, the word shel, shil, if you will, means possessive. It's like the English word mine. In Hebrew, it's pronounced like mine is pronounced sheli. And the English word is his. His is pronounced shelo. Mine is pronounced sheli. His is pronounced shelo. Shelo means his. In other words, in the context of talking about the scepter, it's saying shelo, shilo, we would say it shelo in, in Hebrew. Shelo means the one to whom it belongs, to the man to whom it belongs talking about the scepter, that the scepter shall not depart from Judah until the one to whom it belongs comes. The scepter that extends life and death. It extends life, death and punishment, or it extends forgiveness and life. The one to whom it belongs, Shiloh the one to whom it belongs, the one to whom the scepter belongs, until he comes, there will always be a ruler from Judah, is what it's saying. And that English word for his is Shiloh. So there you get Shiloh. It's the same thing. It's the same. Shiloh, Shiloh, that's how you would say it. In other words, it means the one to whom it belongs. So in the context of this verse, it could read, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until the one to whom it belongs comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. So until the one to whom the scepter belongs comes, you see. It wouldn't depart from the people. The people would have that power through the scepter. But then after Jesus came and that revolt happened, Rome took that scepter away, exactly fulfilling this prophetic utterance here in this chapter 49 of the book of Genesis. Or 40, yeah, 49, that's where we are. And so that's what that actually means. And a lot of people don't realize that. They're arguing over what it means. And they pretty much know it means Messiah in some way or another. But actually the Hebrew makes it clear who it means, doesn't it? The one who has the real power of life and death and forgiveness until the Messiah, until the Lord comes. And after Yeshua came, the power of the scepter was taken away from the Jewish people and the Jewish leaders no longer had the power of the scepter. Just Jacob prophesied here in chapter 49. In fact, there's been agreement all through the years. 
that these verses were talking about the Messiah. And indeed, the day will come when the lion from the tribe of Judah, it says in the book of Revelation, Revelation 5, verse 5 in the New Testament, Barbara Chadashah in the New Testament, that in Revelation 5, verse 5, that it says that would come from the tribe of Judah, one who was lion-like with his strength, with his courage, from the tribe of Judah. And he would be the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And his strength and his courage would be demonstrated in his ability to be like a lamb that is still standing even after it had been slain. That's a striking picture, isn't it, of the crucified and risen Lord. We look at Revelation verse 5, 5, I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 5, chapter 5, verse 6. That's that lion from the tribe of Judah. That's who we're talking about there today, you see. And so we go down through all these verses, and we're only at the first 12 verses, but look at what it said. Look how long I've talked. <laughs> yeah. So everyone's looking at their watches now and everything, and my wife's going, where is he? When's he going to shut up? No, but anyway, this is amazing what these verses say. It's not just a listing of names. It's not just a, a listing of, of an old man speaking to his sons about what's going to happen to them later in life. These things are speaking about the Messiah. In fact, you could make the case that all of the Bible is about the Messiah. The day when God would become a man. The day when God would give his life for the sins of mankind, so that mankind could have everlasting life with Him in the kingdom of heaven like He was designed to. Now this is where we're going to pause for this week, and we'll pick up the rest of this chapter, which is equally interesting. We'll pick it up next week. Yes, we're at the, we're at the end of Genesis, but we don't want to rush it. We want to get everything out of it that God has for us. It's important to finish well. And the things that we've studied all this time for the last 48 chapters now in the book of Genesis are going to wrap up nice and neatly and with power in the next chapter and the remainder of this chapter. So you make sure that you're here next week as we bring it all to a conclusion in this first book of the Torah, Hasefer Bereshit, the book of Genesis. You don't want to miss next week. Now, why don't you give your life to the Lord today, right now? If you call out to Him, He's going to hear that cry, and He'll answer you. He'll rescue you from that darkness you're in. He'll shine His light on your heart. You'll be given a new life. He'll change you into a new person. Throw all those past failures away. You'll be made completely new, given a new start. And He'll even give you everlasting life in heaven, and that's guaranteed by God Himself. I want to give you an opportunity to believe in Jesus as the Lord and Messiah today and to receive this peace that we're talking about in your own life. You can be saved and given everlasting life in heaven by simply believing that God sent His one and only Son into the world to save us from judgment. You could pray something like this. Repeat after me if you'd like. Just say, God, I do want to know you. I do want to have this real peace in my life. I believe on your Son, Jesus Christ, as Lord. Please forgive all my sins. I give my life to you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer, God heard you. He's already started working in your life. Did you know that? A little seed's been planted deep down in your heart. And just like seeds are, you don't see anything for a while, and, but it's putting out roots, growing underneath that ground, and one day it breaks through and people start to notice what's going on. That's going to be the way it is with you if you gave your life to Him today. Over time, you'll begin to see the wonderful changes that God's making in your life. Get in a good Bible-based church. Learn about Him every day in His Word. You talk to Him every day in prayer. He's going to do beautiful things in your life.